We are continuing in this series. Uh, just as you know, last month we looked at the series, I didn't say that, and uh, considered a series of sayings that we think um, that Jesus said, but he really didn't say. And this month we're looking at a series of sayings that we might think at the outset Jesus really didn't say, but he did. Today I'm glad we can continue with our series and to look at Jesus' words, be as shrewd as snakes, or another Bible, or as other Bible translations put it, be wise as snakes. It seems like an odd saying, doesn't it? There is a main theme that I want to look at this morning, and it's about being wise. What does it mean for you and me to be a wise person? So that's what I want to reflect on. And we're going to explore a few other passages of Scripture outside of Matthew chapter 10. But I want to start by lingering on Jesus' strange advice for us to be as wise as snakes. Now, first of all, snakes do not have a great place in the biblical story. Way back in the third chapter of Genesis, the serpent was crafty and shrewd, and the snake manipulated Adam and Eve. And then, if you don't even think of that first story, by the time you get to the very last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, the serpent is called the great deceiver of all the world. Here is this animal that is linked with manipulation and trickery. And is Jesus just telling you and me to be sneaky people? Maybe there's another way in which you don't feel a particular warmth to snakes. Um, How many of you are scared of snakes? Okay, I'm seeing a few hands there going up. Uh, You might just identify with Indiana Jones, who faces no shortage of near-death experiences. He has run-ins with giant boulders, poisonous darts, machine gun fire, lions, and crocodiles. But when it comes to this reptile, all he can say is, I hate snakes. How is it that Jesus wants us to resemble snakes? I want to remind you, first of all, that snakes are not given an entirely horrible billing in the Bible. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, the people of Israel had complained against God's actions. In this strange story, God sent snakes among the people, and many of them that were bitten died. And then God told to put God told Moses to put a bronze snake up on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake up on the pole, they lived. And then Jesus refers to this Old Testament story in a very beautiful way in the New Testament where he says in John 13:14 he says Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have 
eternal life. He uses this story of looking to a snake as a way of God rescuing his people. And mind you, too, that passage in John 3.14 is just before the most famous verse in the Bible, looking up to the snake, and then we get to John 3.16, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, and a blessed verse of promise. So in Matthew chapter 10, we come to another passage that I think talks about snakes in a more positive way. And it's what some people have called the animal's guide for Christian work. Now, most countries in the world have powerful animals that represent their country. The lion is actually very popular. Did you know that it is the most popular national animal for 19 different countries around the world? Hold up the lion and say, this is our animal. This is the symbol of our country, and it's a symbol of power. Uh, Think of other animals, great and powerful. The bear, a powerful animal of what country? Russia, and uh, then also the eagle symbol, other country, the United States, you know, another powerful bird. Um, And then, did you know this? What country has the unicorn as a national animal? This is also a picture of a great power. Scotland has the unicorn as their animal. And then, by the way, One of the countries that has a very modest, gentle animal, maybe it fits for us as Canadians. You know what our animal is, our national animal is? The beaver. The beaver. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, the animal's guide for Christian work. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus speaks of a sheep, a wolf, a snake, and a dove. First of all, he sends us out as sheep to wolves. When we are sent as sheep to wolves, we are not sent out in conquering crusades. His mission of sheep to wolves is not always safe, but it is not a mistake. It is God's way of working. It is intentional vulnerability. Think of how God sends us out to be intentionally vulnerable as we work with others. And I think that's why, too, we've talked, I've talked many times with Christian leaders about how do we share our lives with each other, that, that we also do not want to be afraid of being vulnerable to share our own lives and to share our hearts of the struggles that we have. It is intentional vulnerability the way that Jesus sends us out. We may be disappointed to be called sheep. Wouldn't we rather be sent out as tigers or horses? But in discipleship, we are called to give up the world's standards of heroism. Since we are sheep, though, Jesus is saying, I want you to be smart sheep. Sheep who follow the shepherd's voice. Don't just act like sheep, but be like snakes. 
and doves. Now, snakes and doves don't really belong together, but we are to be the snake and the dove simultaneously. Think of the snake, first of all. The snake has a very artful way of living. One thing that you need to respect about snakes, the snake is not naive, but it is clear-sighted and realistic. It sees life the way that it is. The wisdom of a snake is always in its timing. The snake always shows an element of surprise. A snake knows how to hide and then when to come out. A snake doesn't always have to be conspicuous or out in the open. Much of the activities of a snake are behind the scenes. And then a timely word, a timely action of stepping out and making all of the difference. Be like snakes. But the dove's gentleness eliminates the possibility of violence. So when you appear and when you come out and, and express yourself, it's not with the action of violence. The dove represents the Holy Spirit who brings about restoration or healing and peace. Being a wise dove was prized in the ancient church. In a third century discipleship manual called The Teaching of the Apostles, I love this little phrase. They were regularly commended as being wise doves, at peace with one another and striving to fill the church. What a beautiful description for the church as we carefully and wisely live in our world today. But I want to invite you now to come with me as we think about growing in this kind of wisdom. How can we be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves? And the first thing I want to remind you that we need to do to be wise is that we need to ask for wisdom. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs give a steady reminder to seek wisdom. It urges us to make a choice for wisdom, to get a hold of it, because it is more costly than gold. Take hold of it. Don't let go of it. It is your life. And this wisdom comes as we learn from others. Proverbs talks about the power of relational wisdom. You will notice that the wise person is the receptive and teachable person in the presence of others and in the presence of their teachers. Proverbs 13.20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Are you ready to seek out wisdom by walking with other wise people? We ask to learn from others. We pursue wisdom as we go to other people. Now, should you be surprised if I invite you to keep seeking God together with a company of friends? I certainly hope not. You know that my role here at the church is pastor of discipleship and small groups. Seek out God together with a company of friends. 
Well, my first spiritual friendship is with Sheila, my wife, where we regularly work out how we can follow God in our relationships together. That's my first spiritual friendship, but there are other circles of spiritual friendships that I have. Some 15 years ago, Sheila and I cultivated a friendship with one other couple. We were living in London. They moved away. We moved away. But we still get to keep in touch. And we meet together regularly for friendship, conversation, and prayer. It's a rhythm in our life. And then throughout this COVID season, I have had the privilege to grow and to learn together Uh, Actually, I've been involved with a couple of small groups on a regular basis that I personally participate with. But I learn together also with an amazing group of leaders here at MCBC. I get to walk with the wise and to pursue wisdom. And a wise person is receptive before the wisdom of their teachers And what I'd say, too, is sometimes you learn, too, maybe you learn, too, when you meet with people that you disagree with, or you have different opinions, because then you're reflecting on what other people are saying, and you're learning as you interact with them. What I want to say is this, is that wisdom is always relational. We see that in Proverbs, where it's learning from your teachers. And hence, wisdom is always learned in the context of community. So it is not just in the context of simply reading the scriptures, but it's reading the scriptures together with a group of friends. We ask, and if we are looking for wisdom, we need to ask for that by seeking it out with a group of others. But we also ask from God. James urges his readers to dare to ask for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5, a verse that perhaps you know or heard of. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? You ask. You ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. Did you notice what's in that verse is this? Wisdom is a gift that God gives, but it is also something that we need to pursue. Those two things. If you have no idea where to start and you're longing for wisdom, then ask. Then ask God. Pray for wisdom and trust that God will provide it for you at the right time. I like what Max Lucado says. You don't have wisdom for tomorrow's problems. You don't have it. I think that's why we worry so much. What am I going to do? But you will have that wisdom tomorrow. I want to think with you about two people who were considered very wise in the Old Testament. And their stories both fit in the section of scripture called wisdom literature. You're going to know their names. And the first person I want to think about with you is the wisdom of Job. The book of Job is an important part of wisdom literature. And as Job interacts with his friends, he reflects much on wisdom. And by the midpoint of 
this long book of Job, chapter 28, Job just asks this question, where is wisdom to be found? James Packer tells the story of a busy train station in New York, in England, and where he's, he was describing this train station, and he says, you see a constant succession of trains moving in and out of the hub, and you see the crowds of people gathered and the clacking sounds of the trains on the tracks, and from your point of view where you are standing, you only have a general understanding of the whole operational pattern. And the author, James Packer, who is writing the story, he he tells the story like this. It's, it's a bit older. It doesn't have all the high-tech knowledge. But he says this, If, however, you are privileged to be taken up by one of the senior engineers into the magnificent electrical signal box that lies near platform 7 and 8, you will see on the longest wall a diagram of the entire layout for five miles on either side of the station with little glowworm lights moving um, on the stationary or different tracks to show the signalman at a glance where every engine and every train is. At once, you'll be able to look at the whole situation through the eyes of those who control it. You will be able to see from the diagram why one train had to be signaled to a halt and that the other one had detoured from its normal running line. The why of all these movements becomes plain once you can see the overall position. And it's here that we learn one very important thing that wisdom is not. Wisdom is not a deepened understanding into the ways of God so that we can clearly understand why God has done what he has done in a specific situation and what he is going to do next. Sometimes we're tempted to think, that if we are really walking closely with God, then God will give us all the wisdom to us so that we, in essence, would be in the signal box, that we would understand it all. Job, who was a very wise man, we look at and we hear of the wisdom of Job, even at the end of his life, he came to understand that he didn't have to understand everything in order to walk with God. So Job is able to say at the end of the book, having gained great wisdom, in Job 42 he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. In this verse, Job is teaching us about what wisdom is not. The wisdom of Solomon. Well, another wise person in the Old Testament. Solomon asked God for wisdom. So give your servant a discerning heart 
to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? What a wise act. And God answered him. Solomon was clever. Solomon had no intellectual equal. But you know, as you follow Solomon's story in the Old Testament, you will notice that his wisdom diminished. And as much as he had a great capacity for intellect, there is a distinction between intelligence and wisdom. And Solomon started his life so beautifully, but finished poorly. And we need to learn from Solomon's life. Wisdom, just like faith, calls us to trust, follow, and obey again today. Wisdom, just like discipleship, is a pathway of long obedience. So what is wisdom? If we thought about the wisdom of Job or the wisdom of Solomon, and we say, well, maybe that's not entirely the whole package, what is it? How do we identify wisdom? Do we see it as clever thinking and quick answers? Politicians and radio show hosts desperately need those qualities that just think so quickly on their feet and to be sharp and to respond with a quick and witty answer to the questions that are posed before them. And you can see that even over the past few weeks, how questions are asked of politicians and where um, maybe people are even asking them not with the intent of getting the real answer, but to trick them. James writes... Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life and by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Honestly, this would not be the first thing that I would think of when I think about wisdom. But James is telling us here is where wisdom is to be found. James highlights two things that might be surprising to you and me. Wisdom, first of all, is shown by a good life. A person's good life. James is telling us that someone who is wise does not aim at power, but that person aims at goodness. And so important to mention this, because we live in a culture that is drawn by power, that is attracted to power. A few years ago, in the American magazine, The Atlantic, there was an article on power and researched that over time, unchecked power leads to, and here's from the article, it leads to a manifest contempt for others, loss of contact with reality, restless or reckless actions, and displays of incompetence. That is the result of power. The the article summarizes that those under the influence of just longing for power are less adept at seeing another person's point of view. 
James didn't live in the world of social psychology. But he simply writes in verse 15, such wisdom that is selfish ambition is not really wisdom at all. It is unspiritual. It is of the devil. This kind of mean-spirited ambition, James writes, is not wisdom. You know, so often we can talk about what's a person's IQ? You know, or other, actually more now, we're talking about what's this person's EQ? Their emotional awareness. But we don't talk as much about what are people's GQ? I'm not talking about another magazine that's out there. Um, We're talking about their God quotient. We can't claim to be wise and disregard God's instruction. You know, sometimes I talk with disciples who feel, well, I'm not really equipped to be able to share my faith. Um, If I had all the training like you as a pastor, maybe I'd be equipped to do it. Um, But some people say, I'm not quite smart enough and I'm not quite clever enough to be able to share faith. You know, I am all for encouraging people to grow in their biblical knowledge so that we can be better equipped as a Christian. We need this. We need to grow in grace and in knowledge. We need to grow there. But knowledge by itself is insufficient. If James is trying to tell us something here, it's this. Sharing your faith is not about winning arguments. It is not to show how clever we are or how we can even debate someone very well. I think that's why Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds. Jesus does not say, let your light shine before others so that they might see how intelligent you are. The wise person does not aim at power or knowledge, but goodness. And that's why James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. Another surprising description of what wisdom is. Wisdom is a good life. Wisdom is connected, as James writes it, with humility. Let them show it by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. These are two words that I would not naturally put together to say, this is wisdom. It may seem like a strange connection or a combination for us. Intelligence can tend to breed confidence, and at its worst, intelligence can produce pride. But the one who is humble understands all they have including their wisdom and their smarts, is a gift from God. They embrace the truth that they need God's mercy and grace again today. The idea is made clear that wisdom is not just to shape our minds, but it's to shape our hearts. So in the Psalms we read, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
when I was preparing for my message, actually, I was really perplexed about this. Why, why did the psalmist not say, um, teach us to number our days that we may gain a mind of wisdom? The author is praying for a heart of wisdom, not just a mind of wisdom. It's a prayer to live each day wisely in our thinking, but also to live wisely in our emotions and, uh, and to live wisely with our desires, that it's more than just our minds. A heart of wisdom teaches us to live well in love with God and with each other. And that's how we number our days. That's how we live our days wisely. In the Old Testament, this word for wisdom is called chokmah. You know, it's one of those words that you almost have to spit to say. That's the word wisdom in the Old Testament, chokmah. And it's, it's, um, it also means, that word wisdom, it means a skill or the ability to do something well. So think with me. I'm just going to um, give you a few verses just very quickly. In the book of Exodus, those who have special skills of an artist or craftsmanship, have wisdom. Uh, in the book of First Kings, we read about Solomon's skill of good leadership, and he is described as having chokmah, because he has the skill to be a great administrator. Or you can look at very short comment in the book of Jeremiah 9. You will find that chokmah, wisdom, is the skill of professional mourners and those who learn how to sing and grieve well as they sing when somebody has died, that too is the gift of wisdom. The list goes on and on. It's skill. It's, it's so many skills that are to be listed and found. And as a church, we want to value the skills that everybody has. We hold it up and we say, wow, this is wonderful that you have this gift of wisdom in this area, that you are gifted here because we need the gifts that each person brings in order to really build up the church. But there is a next step in which this word chokmah, or wisdom, is. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This term, the fear of the Lord, is used over 100 times in the Old Testament. Fear of the Lord can mean fear or awe or respect in the presence of God, but it's something also bigger than that. Eugene Peterson writes that in the fear of the Lord, we deliberately interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to God. We come into his holy presence and we wait. This is the beginning of wisdom. So trying to tie it together with the concluding idea, I want to say this, wisdom is a person. In the end, this message is not just about the wisdom of Job or the wisdom of Solomon, 
But Christ, who is wisdom, listen to Paul's words in Colossians, where Paul writes, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is goodness and humility. And then by the time you get to the end of James 3, that passage that Gail read to us, you'll notice that the wisdom that comes from heaven is peace-loving. And as you think about those qualities, um, you think about those qualities, that looks just like Jesus, who has already told us that we are to be wise doves. A wise life is built on a good foundation. Goodness, humility, peace-loving, That's wisdom. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what it is to be wise with the illustration that everybody is building a house. Everybody is building a life, a career, a family. You're building something. And everybody builds a house on some foundation. And don't you think It's true that we all believe that something is true and stable. We're all holding on to some kind of foundation. And I like the way that Dale Bruner puts it. He says this, Jesus invites his hearers to believe that his words are the most stable foundation in the world. What is wisdom? Wisdom is building one's life on Jesus. And if we don't base our life on Jesus and his words, we're going to end up building our lives on somebody else's words. In a few moments, we're going to sing these words, and I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. See, right, that's the words right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, the wise person, the wise person is the one who builds their life upon my words. That's how Jesus puts it. And as we sing those words, I'm going to build my life on your love. It's an investment to say, Lord, My foundation is exclusively upon you. And I'm not building it any place else. I'm building my life on you. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Will you choose today to be a wise dove? Let's pray together.
Lord, sometimes when we think of wisdom, we don't really think of what you are talking about. Maybe we think more of just how clever we can be or how we can give a quick answer. Or, so Lord, sometimes we think wisdom is when I understand everything of how this world works and I can explain it perfectly to others. Lord, we want our wisdom to be displayed by a good life. We want our wisdom to be displayed by a combination of humility and wisdom that comes together. We want wisdom to be lived out that is peace-loving. And Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, didn't just tell us about this, but that you mysteriously lived exactly that way. So help us then to build our lives upon this foundation once again today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.